do you know about fishing? What do you think about fishing? Would you like to talk about fishing? Well, I don't know too much about fishing, so we're not going to talk too much about fishing, but we're going to talk about a story that set the context and the context of the story was fishing. Some man had gone fishing and then in a kind of sort of way, well, maybe a little more than a kind of sort of way, Jesus and one of the guys had a conversation that was Jesus going fishing. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is. This is the program where we challenge each other and we stretch each other in God's direction, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we develop that for each other, with each other. We prod each other in God's direction. And I'm so glad you've given us this opportunity to talk again this week, that you've joined us here on the program I really think that this is going to be an insightful conversation as we go through this really, really interesting and sometimes difficult story in the Gospel of John. As I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We are a real church with really good people, and I'm grateful for the church and their support of this initiative that we have here to talk this way every week. And if you ever get to Cape Coral, swing by and say hello. We'd be glad to have you. Everybody would welcome you warmly and be really intrigued at how you found out about us and be really surprised if we found out you found us through this. But anyway, let's get on with the story because we're here not to talk about our church so much or about me as we are to talk about what the Bible has to say to us this week. And as I frequently say, and people probably get tired of hearing me say this on Sundays following Easter, I frequently say resurrection never ends. And that's really true. And we need to get a hold of that and not let go of that. Resurrection never ends. Yes, we celebrate an event. Yes, we do it every year. But the reality of resurrection never ends. And we need to let that sink in. But we're going to look at something that took place after the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us it was his third appearance to his disciples. And it was really quite interesting. If you were going to be writing a story the way you might like to write it, you probably wouldn't write that this event happened like this, because it seems rather ordinary and unusual all at the same time. The conversation that Jesus has to kind of end the story, always gets our attention and makes us wonder what's going on. And I've been working on that, and I think we have some intriguing ideas as to what's going on. Some really insightful people have done a lot of work to help us understand better, and I want us to go through this story today and sort out what's going on as we continue to remember resurrection never ends. So we're looking at John chapter 21, the gospel of John chapter 21. It's the third appearance of Jesus to his disciples following his resurrection. And it's really quite interesting what's going on. So I want to take this in two pieces or two parts. We're going to look at the first part, which really sets the context for an important conversation that took place in the second part of the lesson that we want to look at today, the lesson from John chapter 21. So let's read it together. I'm going to read again from the Christian Standard Bible. That's the one I frequently use, just just helps me. 
You choose the one that helps you, that you will read and benefit from. But let's go through here and share together this story of Jesus appearing to his disciples, starting with verse 1, John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. So that's the first two verses. I want to just pause there. It, it uses a reference in this English translation, Sea of Tiberias. You might be more familiar with Sea of Galilee, two different names, same place, Sea of Galilee. So they're, they're there at the Sea of Galilee, these men, Peter, Thomas, and the others that are mentioned. So let's pick it up again in verse three. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come, have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So quite a story, quite an unusual event, we might say. I mean, what's going on here, really? Well, there's a few things going on, and I think we can understand them and benefit from them. So the resurrection of Jesus was quite a amazing and disrupting event. Even though the disciples knew that he had come back to life because they had been there in some of the earlier stories and appearances, here he comes again, but they're still, it seems, reeling from what's going on. And so they're back in Galilee now, not really surprising that they would be back in Galilee. They would have returned there following the events in Jerusalem, and particularly they would have returned there at the end of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. That festival would have lasted for about a week, and so then they would have come home or gone home, whichever way you want to think about that, back to Galilee. So here they are in Galilee, and they're next to the Sea of Tiberias, or Sea of Galilee, we usually call it, and Simon Peter decides he's going fishing. So he announced to them, I'm going fishing, and all the rest of them say, well, I'll go along too. Now, we probably understand, but we need to make sure we don't miss it, that this idea of going fishing here is not recreational. 
Okay, this was his vocation. This was his business that Jesus called him from. Now he's returned there and back to familiar territory, familiar things. And and maybe we don't know this from the text, but maybe they just needed to go fishing to process all that had gone on, get back to some level of normality. Maybe, maybe they needed the income. So they wanted to catch some fish because then they could sell them and, and uh, provide for their needs. We don't really know, but we do know that they went fishing and everybody decided they'd go along with Simon Peter as well. So they're in a familiar environment, doing something familiar that, that, that they're all used to doing and, um, away they go. Now, it's very interesting to uh, think about when they went fishing because they end up, and you got that out of the reading of the story, they end up with breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Well, what, what's going on here is different than the way many of us think about fishing. I haven't been fishing and I can't remember when, but I remember when I was a kid and went with my father, we usually went fishing early in the morning and he would wake me up and I decided I really wanted to go. So I roused myself as a kid always does. And away we went to, to go fishing. Now we did that sometimes at home. We went, would go on a Saturday morning. The biggest remembrance I have is when we went on vacation to Minnesota and we'd get up very early every morning and go out in the boat and go fishing. And we consistently, when we were there in Minnesota, caught fish. It was remarkable. Sometimes we caught a lot of fish and then we would spend the day doing what kids do and the grown-ups would spend the day doing what grown-ups do there at this little lakeside uh, resort it wasn't a resort like we think of today it was just some cabins and some grassy area and we could hang out and have a good time and and we did then in the evening after supper we would frequently go out and fish again so our fishing was early morning or late evening or early evening i guess you'd say and we'd come in before dark well, these guys went fishing very differently. They were fishing at night. Now I know because I've heard some people who are avid fishermen or, or people who have gone fishing in ways that I never have. And, and I'm always interested to hear what they do, but here in Florida, I've heard people talk about how they'll go out and fish all night. And I suppose that happens other places as well. This is a particular area for fishing for particular fish is the way I understand it. And don't ask me for details. I don't know, but I've listened to them and I find it interesting that they go out and they spend the night fishing because that's what they need to do to catch what the game that they're after, the fish that they're after. Well, Peter and the guys, they were not out rec recreational fishing. They were out fishing because that was a business. And so they went out at night, probably because that would give them fresh fish to sell at the market in the morning. So they went out to, to get the fish and have them available to sell first thing the next morning when people would be looking to purchase fish. And some people have suggested that they may have gone out to fish at night because maybe the fish were easier to catch at night. Well, some of that's a little uncertain, but that's why they went out at night. And so that's why early in the morning when they were out in the boat and they heard from what turned out to be Jesus calling to them, that might be why they didn't recognize him. But anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So they fished and, and they didn't catch anything. Now you, you and I know the first thing we asked to somebody who's fishing, have you had any luck? Did you catch anything? Well, so it is Jesus who they didn't recognize at first 
called from the shore and said, did you catch anything? Well, really, the text we read said, friends, you don't have, have any fish, do you? Uh, as though he knew, and he did. And, of course, they answered, no, we haven't had any luck. We didn't catch anything. Well, then this man who they had not yet identified says to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. Now, it seems a little unusual for someone who's not a fisherman to be advising them, but they did it. They cast the nets on the right side, just, just as, as suggested, and they found so many fish, they weren't able to haul it in. They cast the net over the side on the right side, and it filled up with fish so many they could not haul it in. That's a lot of fish. So about that time, they recognized Jesus. So it tells us here that the disciple, the one Jesus loved, recognized, it, recognized Jesus and said to Peter, it is the Lord. Well, that set off a flurry of activity. If the fish catch hadn't been enough, now they have to hurry up and get to shore because what in the world's going on? Now, Peter doesn't wait. He just grabs his outer garment, which would have been understandably laid aside while he was working um, for a couple of reasons. One, it would just made it work easier. And two, in ancient times, they were real careful about their clothing because they didn't want to get it damaged by the work that they were doing. So for convenience and for uh, protection of the clothing, he had laid it aside, but he picked it up and he, he jumped in the water and, and took off. Now, some people say, well, how did he get to shore? I mean, they were quite a ways out. And I think the text tells us they were about 100 yards away. So that's a, that's a fair distance. But we don't know for sure. Some people have said, surely he was swimming in. He might have been. I don't know. It's possible. And we don't know how the, the uh, lake was in those days. It may have been shallow enough at that point for him to wade ashore. But in whatever way, he could not wait. He eagerly jumps out of the boat and heads toward the shore. Well, the other men in the boat, the other disciples of Jesus, they follow along and they bring the boat in and they drag the net full of fish with them. So when they get to the shore, they discover that there's a charcoal fire that's been made and there's fish and bread there for them to eat. And then, of course, the text tells us that Jesus invited them to bring some more fish that they'd caught. So there was plenty for everyone. They had a large catch, 153 fish is quite a few fish. So there was plenty for them to eat and then have some left over without a doubt. But it's interesting the detail this story gives us. One of the details it gives us is there's a charcoal fire there. It's also interesting that they had so many fish and it's interesting that the net didn't break. But the charcoal fire has a different connection and we don't want to overlook that. Because the conversation we're going to talk about between Jesus and Peter in the second part of our study today is connected to all of this by this charcoal fire. And it's very interesting that the text uses that specific reference, because both here and in John 18, there's a reference to a charcoal fire. And if you look in John 18, you will discover that's the story of Jesus betraying Jesus, and he betrayed him three times. Well, that three times comes up in the conversation in a minute, but for right now, the charcoal fire connects these two events, one where Jesus betrays Jesus, and now where Jesus and Peter are going to have a serious and important conversation. So they get to the charcoal fire, and uh, Jesus invites them over, bring some of the fish you've just caught, and so they 
together. Simon Peter helped them. They hauled the net of fish ashore and counted them out in 153. And Jesus invites them to come and have breakfast. He served them bread and fish. Not too surprising. That's what he had there, bread and fish. And it's interesting that, that it says they didn't dare ask him, who are you? Now, I don't know why that's the case, but it makes me wonder, maybe it makes you wonder if they were still having so much trouble processing all of this that, that the, the Bible says they knew it was Jesus, but it's almost as though they needed to ask to be sure, but they wouldn't dare because they knew it was him. And uh, so now they have this breakfast together there on the shore and all of their physical needs for breakfast, for food, they were likely hungry. Uh, all that's satisfied. Their anxiety, largely satisfied because it's Jesus, in spite of the fact that they seem a little unsettled about the whole thing at this point. But here they are having breakfast on the beach with Jesus. They had plenty to eat because they followed his instructions. He served them bread and fish and all is right with the world, so to speak. Now, I know some of you are thinking, uh, not so fast because what kind of a breakfast is bread and fish cooked over a charcoal fire? Well, I understand. Okay. It's not your and my idea of breakfast. I didn't have bread and fish for breakfast this morning. Maybe you didn't either, but they have different, uh, diets in those days. And if you've traveled in other places of the world, you'll discover pretty quickly that people eat different things at different times of the day than what you and I are likely used to. So, so don't be too concerned about that. That's just a difference. And, and if we had lived at that time, we would probably be, been glad to have bread and fish for breakfast. In fact, there was, was a considerable amount of poverty in those days, and maybe a lot of people had trouble getting enough to eat. So they weren't too particular they took what they could get. So, so there we go. We have Jesus and his men there on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias, whichever you prefer. They've had breakfast. It's the third appearance of Jesus. And then we want to go on to a conversation that Jesus and Peter had after they finished. And so we pick it up at verse 15. Still reading from John chapter 21, verse 15, from the Christian Standard Bible. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So here's this very interesting conversation between Jesus and Peter. And we've had a lot of efforts to understand that. 
and some of them probably more successful than others. Certainly the three times where Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, is reminiscent of the three times that Peter denied Jesus and betrayed his confidence that he would stand up for him. So that's an interesting connection, particularly with the charcoal fire we mentioned. A lot of times people will talk about some of the specifics of the conversation, uh, specifically the use of the word love, because in the ancient text, if you look at the original language, there are two different words that are used in the conversation back and forth that are only translated in English as love. And so people have wondered, was there some significance to the fact that they use two different words? And, and a lot has been talked about with that, and some serious work's been done with that. But today, most people don't believe that there was significance to the use of words. It's more like the way we use synonyms ourselves. So we, we use a variety of, of words in our expression just because that's the way we, we use our language and it makes it more vivid. So probably that's what's going on here. It probably wasn't anything to do with the specifics of the word choice. But there were some other things going on, and we want to talk about those. We also want to think about and ask ourselves, was this a public or private conversation? Because we see at the end of verse 14, after breakfast, that they were all there together eating and enjoying the breakfast. And then without any real transition, Jesus began speaking to Simon Peter. And when you first look at this, your initial assumption understanding the culture of that day should be that they were all sitting around there and all the other guys were listening and Jesus was talking to Simon Peter and getting his response to this. Well, maybe, again, it doesn't say specifically that's the case, but there is an intriguing hint that maybe it wasn't the case. And the more I've looked at that, the more I think that that's right. This was a private conversation between Peter and Jesus. At first, I thought it might have been a public conversation, and then Peter's responses would have reflected the the feelings of the whole group, and Jesus' question would have been a challenge to the whole group. But in verse 20, the next verse after we stopped reading, it says this, so Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. And right away when I saw that, I went, ding, 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 there's something going on here. So if he was following this disciple that Jesus loved, is following them, then that makes me convinced that Jesus and Peter must have been walking maybe along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I don't know where, doesn't say. But the fact that someone is following them indicates that they were walking and having this conversation. So that's even more interesting, because if that's the case, then there's something going on here beyond what immediately meets the eye for us. There's something going on here than the use of the word love in their questions and response. There's something going on here more than just the fact that Jesus asked Peter three times, and it becomes a counter to the denial, the betrayal, you might say. Uh, maybe denial is a better way to say it, because we think of Judas as the betrayer, but but Peter was pretty much the same way. I, I don't know the man. What are you talking about? He denied that, and in that sense, betrayed Jesus' confidence in him. 
So there is this idea of, of restoring Peter by the threefold conversation there, question answer. And the fact that it's with Peter by himself gives us another real insight, I think, into what's going on here. And we want to explore that through the lens of trying to understand something about the culture of that day as compared to our culture. Now, one of the things we want to do is we want to read the Bible carefully and understand what it says clearly, and we want to keep the sacred story straight. Always, that's at top of mind when we come to these kind of things. Whenever we interpret, we don't want to follow our fanciful ideas. We want to make sure we keep the sacred story straight and understand the story as God wants us to understand it, because he didn't give it to us by accident or happenstance. He gave it to us on purpose so that we could know what we need to know, and we could live the way we need to live. So we want to try to unpack this, and I think that a cultural understanding, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means, really helps us have insight into this story, because Jesus is asking Peter the, this very specific question and giving him a very specific response for, for very good reasons that too easily escape us. Now, let me just introduce this, and we're going to have to take a break in a minute, so we might have to break at an awkward time, but I think you can keep up with this. So we know from our experience that we live in North America in an individualist culture. It's all about individual responsibility, individual opportunity. We are individuals. We talk about individual rights frequently. We talk about how important it is to preserve our individual rights and all of the rest of the stuff. We are individuals. In fact, when we meet a new person, we ask them their name because that name sets them apart as an individual. We don't ask them first about their family or their hometown or anything like that. We ask them their name. By contrast, in a collectivist culture, they will lead that conversation differently. They may ask about their families, where they're from, all of those kinds of connections before they would ever ask them their name. Because in an individualist culture, we are identified by who we are apart from our family heritage and our hometown. Now, I'm not suggesting, so don't go too far on this. I'm not suggesting that, that we deny that. I'm just suggesting that we aren't first identified by that. I'm not suggesting that we don't think it's important where we, where we came from or who our families are or anything like that. I'm not suggesting any of that. But I am suggesting that we are known most by who we are individually. We, we have stories about people who set out from home to seek their fortune, and we consider them heroic people. Some of us have done that. We've left home and gone to places a long way away because we felt like that was the right thing to do. And there was nothing to constrain us from doing that as long as we felt like we were ready to do it because we're individuals. We're not a collectivist culture. On the other hand, a collectivist culture, people are known more by the group that they're a part of, meaning their family. So their identity comes from their family, not from themselves as an individual, not from their work so much as from their connections, from their relatives, from the wider community. We would call that the extended family. 
So a collectivist culture identifies people that way. An individualist culture identifies people by who they are and what they've done and what their name is and gives them permission to be separate from the group. Collectivists don't think that way. They don't have any idea that it's a good thing to be separate from your family. Why would you want to be separate from your family? Why would you ever consider moving 500 or 1,000 miles away from home and go out on your own apart from your family? That, that doesn't make any sense to them. In the same way, the unwillingness to move 500 or 1,000 miles away doesn't make sense to us. We think, well, if that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. And we've all known people that had to move a long way from home because they needed work. And so they would go and, and work a long way from home and maybe never move back to their hometown because they just had to have a job. And so they went where the work was. That's not really the way collectivists think. So when we ask ourselves, was this an individual conversation with Jesus or was he part of the group having this conversation? It gives us a lot of insight as to what's going on. Because if they were talking as a group, then you would expect Jesus' question to be a little bit what we might call rhetorical, or at least for everybody to answer. And we wouldn't be surprised if Peter was the spokesperson for everyone, because we would expect that whatever he was saying would reflect what everybody would be thinking, because they tended to find their identity in those connections with each other. So we're going to explore this difference between an individualist and a collectivist culture, because it gives us some really intriguing insights into this story of Jesus asking Simon Peter, do you love me? And Simon Peter saying, you know that I love you. And then Jesus saying, feed my lambs or shepherd my sheep. Those expressions to Jesus, feed my sheep and what that means. So get ready for a great ride. We'll be back in just a moment. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11. 
a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Plunging into some interesting territory today on the program. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We are helping each other develop confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And in some respects, that's what this story was doing, developing confidence in the disciples because they were seeing Jesus for the third time after his resurrection. And so that was going to give them more confidence. It's also interesting that this conversation that we're about to talk about between Peter and, and Jesus was meant to develop confidence, maybe Jesus' confidence in Peter. Maybe Peter was assuring Jesus that Jesus could count on him. I think a lot of that's going on, probably in ways that we probably would not have thought about because they're definitely not familiar to us. So this conversation that Jesus and Peter are having is what we might call a friendship testing conversation. They were going back and forth, and a lot of times we interpret it as a, a kind of antidote to the denial that Peter gave earlier, but it's also very, very intriguing to think of it, and I think correct to think of it as a friendship testing conversation. I, I'm not suggesting that that they weren't friends already, but I'm suggesting that friendship was different in those days, and so the, the expectations were different, and so the level of assurance of the friendship would have been a little different. Okay, so for them, uh, friendship is not about being friendly. Okay, we think of friendship as being friendly. Every church you've ever known about thinks they are a friendly church, and I hope they are. I really do because they're friendly with each other. And so when people come in, they're friendly. We're friendly to everyone. We're friendly to the people that we see in the store when we go buy our groceries. We're just, most of us, I hope you're not a sorry old grouchy rascal. Most of us are friendly and we try to present ourselves as friendly. But in those days, friendship was more than what we think of as being friendly. Friendship in those days was about being reliable that your friend could depend on you. Now, we have friendships like that. Uh, we have friendships when we can count on each other, when we need help. We, we have that. But in those days, that was the definition of friendship. They didn't think of friendship differently. Uh, it was more than an association or camaraderie. They expected their friend to be someone they could rely on when they needed that friend. And they wanted to make sure that their friend saw it that way so that if they ever needed and called on them, they would know their friend would respond. For us, we have some friends like that, but we usually have qualifiers related to our understanding of friendship. Remember, they only understood friendship as this idea of, of being reliable, that 
I can depend on my friend, my friend can depend on me. We talk about people who are our good friends or our close friends or our old friends. So we have a little broader group. I might call someone a friend when they're really an acquaintance. And so when I'm thinking about that, I might need to be careful and say, well, I'm so-and-so's friend or, or at least their acquaintance. And so when I say that, people understand why I would use the word friend, but they would also understand why I would clarify that with the word acquaintance. In the ancient world, they didn't think about it so much that way. Their friendships were much more solid when they talked about a friendship, much more built on a mutual sense that they could rely on each other. So when Jesus asked Peter these three questions, it's very much consistent with the way collectivist people today will test a friendship. When they're thinking that this person could be their friend, they might call them on the phone and have a conversation and see how the other person responds. And if that goes well, then they might call and say, well, let's get together and have coffee sometime or lunch. We have all kinds of kind of getting acquainted rituals that way. And all of that is in, in the collectivist culture is a, te a tendency or a, a uh, testing to see if that relationship should deepen. Now we do something similar to that, but we never expect our friendships to go to the extent that a collectivist culture does where it becomes a reciprocal dependency. Now that sounds like a fancy word and I don't mean it to be, but it's very important to understand that, that when they needed a friend in those days, they needed a friend that they could depend upon because they had to depend upon each other to survive. It wasn't the same as it is in our day. So, so if they were going to depend on somebody, they needed to make sure that, that there was this reciprocity involved. So I can depend on you and you can depend on me. And we didn't have to wonder because when it came time for us to need our friend, we had to have the assurance that they would come through for us. So it's a little bit like the dependency. And I, I read the phrase that, that a collectivist culture would think about we support we. And so the idea is that they are there for each other. Uh, we think about things more in terms of one person caring for another. I give to you, you give to me, those kinds of things. Uh, that's more individualistic. A collective culture really had this sense of, of reciprocal dependency. There was no question that when that friendship was established, that it's we give to each other. We are mutually committed to helping each other when the help is necessary. It's a little hard for us to get our minds around how a collectivist culture thinks because we are so, so very individualistic. But do try to think that way because the story of the Bible, all of the story of the Bible, is set in a collectivist culture. So, for example, when you read the New Testament and you see the word you, you need to think plural you, not singular. We individualists, we think singular you. But the context of the times would have been a plural understanding of that. An individualist understanding of the, of the relationship of friends would be that they give gifts to each other back and forth. But a collectivist thought of it in a totally different way. It was reciprocal, and yes, there was this back and forth, but they, they were much more strongly bound to each other. 
and they had this identity that depended upon that. So their friend could always be counted on. So if they if they had a, a problem of any kind, they knew who they were because they knew who their friend was and their friend would help them. So this kind of reciprocity was very significant. And so when Jesus here asked Peter three times, do you love me? Jesus is definitely asking to test Peter to see if he really is his friend. A lot had happened. Peter had denied Jesus. Resurrection came along. All of these things. And so Jesus is simply clarifying for Peter and for us that they were friends and that they could be counted on. Because notice also that not only does Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. But Jesus said, well, in response to that, you need to feed my sheep. You need to care for my lambs. You have a job to do. And so Peter understood that in this reciprocal relationship, he had something to take care of, and he shouldn't run away from that. Now, it's also true that in these friendships, there were some friendships where people were on a similar level so that their, their friendship was, was on a level playing field, we might say, or we might say that it's symmetrical because neither one had greater resources than the other. And so they were of similar status socially and economically. And so they helped each other in similar ways. They were, they were definitely bound to help each other. There was no question about that. But there was, it was the, the difference was that they were bound together in that relationship as equals, not one having more resources than, than the other. So we would use the term recipro reciprocity um, that is symmetrical, not one over the other. They were still bound to care for each other, but it was a different thing. Now, related to this idea of friendship and reciprocity, and this cuts all the way through the New Testament and, and through the culture of the times, it was just something they knew was true, something we have to think about being true because it's not true for us in the same way. So there developed what we now call a system of patronage or patron-client relationships. Now, these were still reciprocal relationships because that's the way relationships worked in the ancient world. There was always the expectation of reciprocity. But in terms of the patron-client relationship, these were unequal parties. So the greater party would be called the patron and the weaker party would be called the client. And they were still relationships. They weren't contracts. They were still relationships, but they were asymmetrical instead of symmetrical. There was one person who had more resources than the other. And so the way that worked would, would function differently than two people who are equals. So the patron could provide things for the client that the client could not get any other way. Maybe a simple example of that is maybe the patron had access to some kind of goods that the client needed. And in those days, you couldn't just run down to Walmart and buy it. You had to know somebody who could help you get that. And so the patron might help the client get that widget or thingamajig that they needed. And so that was a way a patron could help a client. In the same way, the client then, you might say, well, what did they give back? Because if they didn't have the resources, 
Well, they were glued together because the ancient world functioned on this idea of reciprocity, gratitude, and services. They were glued together by this relationship. So if the patron would provide something for the client, then the glue of the relationship required the client to give something back. And that would be usually in the sense of gratitude or some kind of service to the patron. Now, the gratitude in this case wasn't like, oh, I'm uh, thankful for what you have done and a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not that. We need to make sure we don't think that. The gratitude was concrete. They would do something concrete to demonstrate their appreciation for the, the gift that the patron had given them. In the same way with services, maybe they needed to go do something for the patron. And so they would do that. Their, their gratitude was demonstrated maybe by the service they performed for the patron. It was never simply a warm, fuzzy feeling, oh, I'm really thankful for this. All right. It was, it was a relationship where they actually gave back and forth to each other. And, and we might say, well, it sounds like that's a relationship with strings attached, where if somebody gives something to somebody and they expect something back. Well, yes, except we tend to think of those relationships with strings attached as, as negative. They didn't think of them that way. They thought them as just a normal part of a, of a wonderful relationship where they helped one another. They thought it was positive. It wasn't like strings attached. It was more like the patron and the client, even in an asymmetrical relationship, were holding hands because they were helping each other. And that was part of the way life functioned. So the client would reciprocate to the patron, not because they could give them an equal gift, but with gratitude and expressions of gratitude to honor the patron, maybe to obey the patron, to give loyalty to the patron. Those are significant concepts of that. And this whole idea of gratitude, obligation, loyalty that undergirded the system of patronage worked both ways. There was loyalty from the patron to the client as well as from the client to the patron. They didn't have contracts like we do. They didn't need them because that went without saying that they were supposed to function this way. It was, as, as one person I read said, that gifts and gratitude was the air they breathed, the grease of society. It's what kept things running smoothly, because that's the way they understood things in relationships, where they gave and received as people who were friends, not with strings attached, but because they were holding hands with, with each other, and they were in a relationship that mattered, and they wanted to preserve that, and it needed to be preserved. We think a gift with strings attached somehow taints the gift, and so we don't want to give gifts with strings attached. So with just that little bit of introduction, let's think about what's going on here with Jesus and Simon Peter. So Jesus is clearly the patron because he's the resurrected son of God. That's made clear earlier in the Gospel of John, especially when, when Thomas said, my Lord, and my God. They understood that Jesus was divine. He was the son of God. He was Messiah. So they weren't equals but they were still in a relationship because the relationship could be either equal or unequal. It was still a relationship with obligations of, of support back and forth on the client's part, gratitude and service on the patron's side to give what the client could get without the patron's help. So here's Jesus now 
he's saying to Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Well, this is a, as I suggested earlier, a friendship testing question. And he asked it three times, even to the extent that Peter is exasperated or distressed or frustrated or whatever you want to assume when it says Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, because Jesus is clearly testing to make sure that that Peter is understanding this relationship, and Peter is going to function as one who is grateful and who serves the patron as a client. So when Jesus was counting on Peter, he wanted to be able to know that he could count on Peter. And in every situation, after Jesus asked the question, do you love me? And Peter responded, yes, I love you. Jesus gave him instructions, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. So Jesus wanted to know, was Peter really his friend, and could he count on him? Because Jesus wanted Peter to take a key responsibility in taking care of Jesus' followers, shepherd my sheep. So the three times asking the questions was maybe not so much for Peter's benefit, but it yeah, probably was because he had to say it three times. But it also points out what ancient people would have understood was this patron, Jesus, was trying to make sure that Peter, his client, was going to be loyal to him, was going to express gratitude by serving him and doing what he needed done. Because in patron-client relationships, they helped each other this way, and sometimes the patron needed the client to do something, and so the client did what they could because that's how they reciprocated the patron's benefit that they had enjoyed. So this is what's going on. This is a, it's a friendship clarification conversation, and it's also a patron-client conversation where Jesus is giving Peter an assignment. Now, what is that assignment? Now, this is really quite interesting because we don't tend to think of them this way, but but the imagery here is feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, again, the specifics of the phrase Jesus used aren't the important thing. The specifics that's important is that it's a reference to shepherding. Now, it wasn't a reference to shepherding sheep in a literal sense. Many places in the Bible, we see the reference to shepherding sheep. Psalm 23 is one of those. It's a, it's a wonderful psalm. Read it often. Revel in it's both its beauty and in what it communicates to us about God. But understand that when the Bible uses the shepherding imagery, it uses it with the sense that the shepherd takes care of the people who are under his care. So in ancient times, the head of the household would be expected to shepherd the entire household. And it might be a vast, huge household because the extended families would often be together as, as maybe a tribe or a clan. And so the head of that household was looked to as the shepherd of that. And so they were to care for all of those people that depended upon them to provide the necessary things. And then those people in the household served the shepherd, patron-client-like, friendship-like, kinship-like, and there's a lot more to it than what we're talking about right now. But you begin to understand that Jesus was asking Peter to take on this responsibility to take care of Jesus' followers. And Jesus needed to know that he could count on Peter to do that. And so he asked them, 
do you love me? And Peter affirmed that three times. And Jesus said, take care of the people that are under my care. I'm going to put them in your hands. Really quite interesting that Jesus makes that statement, because that's what's going on here. It's not about sheep. It's not just about the denial. It's not about the specifics of the language of the word usage of a form of love that's used in the ancient language. It's about Jesus making sure he can trust Peter and Peter accepting his responsibilities as the client in this patron-client relationship. Clearly, Jesus was the, was the greater party. I mean, you don't get any greater than God. And clearly, Jesus was depending upon Peter to handle things while he was going to be going away. They don't talk about Jesus leaving at this point, but clearly we understand what's, what's coming up and what's going to follow later. So Jesus tests the friendship, finds out that Peter's going to be loyal, and gives Peter an assignment to take care of the sheep. Very important and significant, significant um, conversation. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, we're not Peter, and so we don't need to assume that what Jesus was saying to Peter, he's saying to us. Yes, we might have responsibilities in the, in the people of God, in the household of faith, in the church, and yes, we should fulfill them properly. But probably what we should think about most is that Jesus wants to know if he can count on us. You know, if this is a friendship testing conversation, Jesus wants to know, can I trust you? And so he's saying to you and to me today, do you love me? Can I trust you in this relationship? Will you be loyal to me? Will you demonstrate your gratitude by the things that you do to benefit me, by the service you provide to me? Can I know that, that, that without a doubt that I can count on you, that your loyalty is assured? You see, we tend to think in our individualistic culture, in our Western mindset, that if we have this fuzzy feeling of gratitude, we've satisfied what our relationship requires. And in the ancient world, that was never the expectation. It was always the sense that we would do something that benefited the relationship, or more specifically, as the client in the relationship to Jesus, the patron, we would do things that would benefit Jesus, benefit our patron. And we would do them not with, well, let me think about this, not with reluctance, not with hesitance, but with joy, because this was a relationship where we were holding hands. And yes, this is expected to me. It's a great honor, we might even think, for me to help my patron, because my patron has helped me so much. And Jesus wants to know, what's the level of our loyalty? Are we people that he can depend upon? You see, he ends this, this story, the writer of John ends this story with Jesus saying to Peter, follow me. And that's the point for us as clients, as the lesser party in this patronage relationship with Jesus being the patron, our responsibility is to follow what our patron needs us to do and to follow the pattern of life he lays out for us. So in anything that's expected of us, we should see it through the eyes of 
Look at how we have benefited from this relationship. Look how we've benefited from Jesus taking on himself the sin of the world to provide salvation for people and deliverance from evil. We should look at that and say, look what we have benefited. So when Jesus asked me, are you ready for this? So when Jesus asked me to tithe to him, for example, oh yeah, you know, I had to get to something like that. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm trying to illustrate it concretely. So when Jesus asked us to tithe, we say, well, of course, why wouldn't I? My patron needs me to do that. I will do that because we realize we have a responsibility in this relationship. When my patron asked me to serve in the kingdom of God by working with children, we would say, why, yes, I will do that or whatever else God has gifted us to do. And that's a little different conversation, but God has given us special abilities as his people to serve in his kingdom. So when he asks us to serve using those, we say, Yes, glad to, happy to, so glad you asked me, because we recognize we have this reciprocal relationship. Jesus is our patron. He has done so much for us that then we as the client, we are eager and happy to return that grace to him, that service, that gift of love to him by what we do. And Peter's responsibility was to shepherd Jesus' sheep. Our responsibility is to follow and to respond to Jesus in whatever way he calls us to respond. Doesn't mean it's always easy to say yes, but when we begin to understand this, it makes it easier. Because when we understand this reciprocal relationship, it helps us develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what he wants from us, that kind of confidence, and that's what we need. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Thanks for joining me. We'll talk some more next week.